0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Karstow-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Alan last week, where we went through many of the behavioral challenges investors face when they have to choose a manager for their portfolio. So you should definitely check that one out. Also, um, if you missed our Wednesday episode in the Global Macro Series, I would strongly recommend that you listen to the one we just uh, published as it featured one of my own favorite podcast hosts, Grant Williams, and where we managed to touch on many of the most important topics that the world is dealing with right now. And oh, then Grant added a little bit of spice at the very end of the conversation. But you need to know, go and listen to that episode to find out what I'm referring to. Richard, it is fantastic to see you. How are you doing, my friend?
1: Very good, Niels. I I was saying to you last month how... um, the rain had stopped, but it decided to open up again, so we've had another month of wet and um, yeah we, we we're looking forward to a bit of sun if that ever comes, but also we're sort of heading into winter, so uh, yeah may, maybe we're not going to have this opportunity for the sort of the Queensland Sun, so um yeah, stay I tuned <laughs> well,
0: true, but you are the son of Queensland I guess. <laughs> All righty. Okay. Uh, Since uh, Rich and I uh, are recording a day early today, it's Friday and it is unemployment Friday report today in uh, the US. Um, But we're recording just before the numbers. Actually, the numbers will be released as we're recording. But if we miss something and the markets are completely different to what we're going to be talking about today... Um, then you know why. Uh, first off, we've got a few things um, that obviously is happening at the moment. And just as a quick uh, recap of what's going on, um, from my point of view, it is really the rising inflation. And it's very evident when you look at the numbers being reported both in the US and in Europe, uh, where we're seeing inflation headlines of, you know, 8, 8.5%. And at the same time, we have the European policymakers dealing with the fact that Russia is turning off the gas to several European countries at the moment, whilst the Europeans in kind are implementing even more sanctions. And then, of course, you have the issue of Turkey not letting Sweden and Finland get an easy uh, way into NATO, which is uh, making things uh, very interesting. And then something turned up on my screen uh, yesterday, and I think this is really interesting. It turns out that there is a massive amount of divergence between the lowest and the highest inflation rates within the eurozone, the 19 countries within the euro. Um, And the difference between the lowest and the highest now is 14%. So in one end, you have Malta, where the inflation is, quote-unquote, only 5.6%. And on the other end, you have Estonia, where the inflation rate is 20.1%. So clearly these countries don't really need the same medicine to tame inflation, yet the ECB only has one interest rate that they can change uh, and one monetary policy that they can set. And I think this is going to create even more tension in the whole euro project, which we, um, we may not have seen anything like this so far because, of course, ever since the euro got launched, inflation has been so modest. So this will be another test of that whole project. And uh, to round things off maybe, uh, it's not just in Europe, things are, are interesting. Uh, the U.S. Fed and the Treasury uh, had for officials out in the last few days again coming out with "quote unquote" diverging statements to say some, to say the least, and a few truths. For example, we had Secretary Janet Yellen admitting on May 31st that she had been wrong last year in saying that inflation wouldn't pose a continuing problem. And I quote from the article or from the interview I didn't fully understand the unanticipated and large shocks stemming from supply bottlenecks, apparently, she told CNN. And then at the same time, you had Fed Atlanta President uh, Rafael Bostic. Uh, he said that his suggestions the week before that the central bank would take a pause in September from raising interest rates shouldn't be construed as a fit put and believed that the central bank would come to the rescue of the markets. So it's kind of interesting. And then finally, you had Fed board member Christopher Waller, and I think his term runs all the way to 2030. And he's quoting for saying to the Wall Street Journal, I support tightening policy by another 50 basis points for several meetings. And in particular, I'm not taking 50 basis point hikes off the table until I see inflation come down closer to our 2% target. So no wonder the markets in May uh, was a little bit uh, confused. Um, we'll see what happens over the uh, over the summer. Those are some of the things that I picked up, um, but I have to say it's been a busy week, Rich, so I may have missed quite a lot. What about yourself? How are you doing? You got the rain. How's the battleship? Lots of things going on. Well, the the
1: battleship took a breather in May, so um, it had climbed this massive ascent and um, it sort of put out a few tents and it's had a bit of a rest for May. But interestingly, in the last few days, it's gone back into trend again, uh, continuing on with some of the um, the good performance I was I was seeing originally in in you know some of the forex trades, um, and some of the, uh, the energies. And um, so yeah, it seems to be coming back again um, with a bit of life. And, you know, it's very interesting how, you know, in the last, you know, quite a few years, we sort of had this period where we expected almost a, a large retracement after these glorious gains that we had. But at the moment, uh, we, we just sort of seem to be entering plateaus before it takes off again. So hopefully that continues. Yeah,
0: that's true. And from a market perspective, when you are invested or trying to invest in these type of markets, because I fully agree, It's really hard to get into the position you want because it never gives you a chance. You're sitting there hoping to, quote unquote, buy the dip, um, but it never does give you that option. So I think maybe people are still not positioned the way they want to be in some of these commodities in particular. I think they have the conviction. I just think they're short the positioning, so to speak, um, which will be uh, interesting to follow. Um, Since we just finished the month of May, maybe it is worth just uh, spending a little moment on that uh, from a trend-following performance point of view. I completely agree with you. Performance eased off just a little bit in May. Nothing too dramatic from the early numbers that we've seen. Um, The Continued uncertainty and shortages in energy, uh, of course, provides fantastic opportunities uh, within the energy sector. And I think trend followers made the most of that. The US dollar weakness, on the other hand, probably was where we had some down pressure. And also uh, equities, depending on your time frame. I mean, uh, long-term managers versus shorter-term time frames may have had a different result in, um, in the equity sector. Um, on the other hand, I don't think that there are some huge exposure in equities right now from a trend-falling point of view. And then elsewhere in the fixed income sector, that was quite interesting from my perspective because I think that people would have experienced um, you know, European fixed income markets doing fine and then in the US, uh, you probably lost some money. Um, so a very clear divide, mainly because in Europe, they're now starting to talk about finally Uh, getting out of the negative interest rates from the ECB. I mean, I wonder what they're waiting for, but anyways. And in the US, of course, I think people maybe felt that they had priced too many rate hikes in because of some of the statements we had in the last uh, few weeks. But now with the changes in in even the rhetoric from the central bank, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not so sure other than that uh, we're going to see renewed pressure on. US fixed income markets when it comes to price. anyways, metal soft grains probably lost a little bit of money in May. Um, but I think meats if for those who are exposed to meats that you had a little bit of a gain in that. Um, so anyways Rich, we have so many questions. I don't think we've ever had so many questions for one episode. so let me be uh, you know very upfront about it and say we're gonna do our best. To get as many as we can done, um, and then we'll 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 keep some. I'm sure we'll have to keep some because there's one or two topics that you brought along that I think is important that we do want to touch on as well. Um, so um, so let's just uh, jump right into it um, and see where we go. First question that came in was from John. Uh, and John has been waiting for a few weeks because I think it came in just after you were on last time and John writes on the last episode Richard mentioned that he varies his initial stops and trading stops what methods does he use to calculate these that's the first question
1: yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for that question, John. Um, I suppose I, I engage in this pretty comprehensive workflow process, which um, rather than setting my initial stops and my trailing stops uh, from you know a discretionary basis, I use the data to tell me how to place my initial stops and trailing stops. But I don't just use the data associated with the return stream that I'll be trading. I also use um, a vast array of of different market data as well to uh, basically ensure that um, that initial stop and that trailing stop do not just respond to a single market history, but they respond to multiple possible different market histories. So in in that manner... um, when, when, for instance, uh, for my trend-following models, um, I apply an ATR-based initial stop and an ATR-based trailing stop, um, I'm applying that across perhaps... Um, 30 different alternate possible histories to um, basically tell me um, which is the, the the best combination using a very loose pant methodology because it's not responding to a single historic market regime it's responding to many many different possible regimes. so it's very loose pants and that therefore uh, means that I'm using the data to tell me where to um, place them as opposed to any form of discretionary judgment.
0: Yeah. No. Cool. And by the way, let me also say that today, maybe Rich and I have to be a little bit shorter in our answers than normal, because otherwise we won't get through all of these questions. One thing that just in my mind that actually, and I don't know where we are going to Get to uh, a question that asked this this particular point, but something I thought about when you just talked about it. And by the way, for those who don't know, when Rich talks about loose pants, and you think, well, I must have tuned into the wrong channel because <laughs> is this fashion or what are we doing here? When we talk about loose pants, we actually just talk about the fact that we are very, um, we want a a large, uh, we want to give the markets a lot of leeway. Uh, in terms of where our initial stops and actually also where the trailing stops are. So uh, if the market retraces, we don't get stopped out too soon. That's what we mean by loose pants. And by the way, it's a Perry Kaufman um, quote, by the way, that we're, we're, we're butchering here uh, and, and have done for a while now. But anyways, my question to you, and I was just thinking about it, do you think the pants can get too loose? Because you know, too loose
1: pants don't look good on people. So what about what about trend following? perhaps they can. Um, That's a good question. Uh, You know, for instance, I would regard a a trend-following program that doesn't have a trailing stop. In other words, just uses their initial stop and has some form of profit target. I'd say those pants are a bit too loose for me. That's just personally for me. I like um, having a trailing stop that at least um, in relative terms hugs price so that you know um we all often talk about the give backs you know when the the trend turns and um you know I, when when I've made uh, my windfall with some of these trends i I don't like giving too much back so I do like right. having some sort of trailing mechanism that is uh, whilst it's loose yeah. pants it's not the loosest pants
0: <laughs> no and I think maybe for clarification Rich we should say that we have never advocated for using profit targets nor not having a trailing stop and only having an because an initial stop In theory, you never move it, so you're going to lose money at some point, right? So, I mean, there's no point in having that. You do need the trailing stop. Um, So, okay, fine. That was just uh, a thought. Then we have a few questions from Abe, and um, I'm not going to necessarily go into all of the details because I think then that's probably not needed, but let me give you some, and let me raise the questions that um, came to mind here. Um, Abe writes, after having listened to TTU's great back catalogue of content in full, thank you, abe <laughs> that, that is a mean feat for sure, I have begun to implement the basic trend following model. I trade three products at a, at, at a time only, selected quarterly, preferring greater liquidity first and higher volatility second, and so my chance of catching an outlier move is very low indeed. Despite this, I found the results of backtesting and live trading to be quite satisfactory. My trading costs are low, up, I'm not forced to um, use costly CFDs, okay, I think it should say, so I'm not uh, forced to use costly CFDs, which I would be if I had to a typical 50 uh, plus markets, and my number of trades is relatively small, so I don't cross the spread that often. I don't need to trade illiquid products or take part in questionable regulatory regimes, China, for example, or trade products that could be Um, could be zeros um, like Bitcoin. Okay, it had been said on TTU that diversification is the secret source of trend following, but I'm not sure um, there is a secret source at all, as trend following without broad diversification is clearly profitable on its own. Okay, fair enough. Um, And then you have a few questions, Arbe. You say here, are we, as a trend following community, focusing too much on adding ever more markets? That's one question. Do we need outliers at all? Does adding esoteric products increase tail risk, counterparty risk, regulatory risk that won't be captured by our backtest? Can we not benefit from trending markets without diversifying just as other traders benefit from diversification without trend following? And finally, should we not put a greater emphasis than we currently do on reducing transaction costs, especially if we uh, expect spreads to widen in the future perhaps due to socioeconomic turmoil fourth turning etc okay so in the uh, in the being mindful of the time um how would you respond to that rich i've got a few smaller comments but how would you th- respond Look, to that
1: um the, the question comes down to how do you define trend following? And um, mm. I, I I see what is doing. He's using a, a much more selective process than I'd use where he's, he is selecting the top three performers on a quarterly basis or something like that that he was mentioning. And then um, his, his back test is showing him um, very good performance. Now, Look, in my definition of trend-following, that wouldn't be what I'd class as diversified systematic trend-following. And probably the outcomes he's he's getting where he's questioning whether you need outliers, whether you need that degree of extensive diversification, is because how he is deploying his model is not how I would deploy a diversified systematic trend-following model. So um, I appreciate where he's coming from, but I'd just say that um, – whilst we, we talk about trend following, um, as, as you know, in all of our podcasts, the arguments and the debates that we have over uh, our models are highly nuanced. But when I'm, I'm, I'm seeing something that Aave's talking about, his model, I'm saying, in my mind, that is classing it as a different form of model, almost um, entirely to trend following. Mm-hmm. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd say that, Um, Aave's model might fit more into um, what I'd call cross-sectional momentum trading, where you are, it's a selective methodology where you are um, only choosing a handful of the top performers um, based on their recent performance, and then um, using them for the next period, and you're continually rotating in and out of your top performers. I am saying that that's more a, a, a that's a different form of process than what we apply with with trend following. What what are you saying, Niels? Yeah, so
0: um, if I see some commonalities and I don't know if Arbe you are actually uh, referring to this, but when we had uh, Perry Kaufman on the show a while ago, um he argues for this, he doesn't do it with three markets, but I can't remember how many markets he trades, but he does select I think every 60 days, I think he selects um, the new portfolio of markets. So it is a different kind of thinking, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, even though I think three markets seems incredibly more prone to lock or unlock, frankly. Um, But I completely agree with you, Rich, that this is not what I would define as trend following. For me, trend following is having a fixed portfolio of markets where, quote unquote, you're you're always, you know, you always have a signal, even if the signal is flat. You always have calculated your signal. You know where you want to be in that position and, and you rely on this higher level of diversification and, and and not too much optimization, frankly. I think what you're doing, Abe, relies more on some kind of optimization in order to select the right mark it's, and of course, I don't know how you select your parameters, but you know, hey, if you can make this work, there's nothing wrong with that. And we certainly shouldn't try and trade the same uh, way everyone. I think what it would fall into, uh, it sounds like, is just systematic trading, which is frankly the name of the podcast series. So I'm not, I'm not too fussed about it really. Um, and so, so good on you if you found something that works and uh, and so on and so forth. I do agree with you. Uh, well I don't know if it's if, if it's uh, I, I don't know what your position is on that um, where you say does adding esoteric products, et etc et etc uh, well, no I don't think you need to do that. I think you know stay safe, stay on the exchanges. Um, there's plenty of markets you can trade uh, that are exchange listed. make sure you have little liquidity. all of those things um, I think is fine. And what else did you ask? Oh, but about reducing transaction costs? Well, you know, it sounds to me like you might be more short-term. And of course, with short-term systems, we know transaction costs are important. So, of course, you should always try to reduce them. But for the longer-term trend followers like the firm I work for, frankly, our total expense for uh, transactions on a yearly basis is somewhere between half a percent and 1%. It really makes very little difference. Um, So we're not too fussed about that. I know some... Managers, so I've certainly heard about firms who make a big fuss about um, transaction costs, but I think that's because they're short term and therefore transaction costs are very meaningful. But for long term trend followers, it's not a big hurdle that we have to jump over every year. All right, Um, and by the way, thanks for your kind words Uh, at the end. I forgot to read those, but I'm sure people i'm fine with that all right we're going to jump to a question from sack sack has in fact two questions uh he writes in um Here are two questions for the next systematic investor episode. What techniques, thought processes or process controls uh, are used by professional CTAs to ensure they follow their system rules during drawdowns? I recently rolled some positions and now when I review my brokerage statement, positions that were showing significant open trade profits now have the potential to show large open trade losses if trends reverse back to my stop. This potential change to the P&L statement has me considering what is needed to maintain focus and execute as planned during difficult times. And secondly, you ask uh, Zach, which computer programming language is standard in the CTA industry? I've been running my system via Microsoft Excel for the past two and a half years, and now I believe I have the mental fortitude to stick to a systematic trading system. I'm considering learning how to program. And um, this is with the goal of automating my data entry and signal generation, et cetera, et cetera. So i um, will I'll love to hear your thoughts uh, on this, Rich, but maybe just to to uh, answer the first part of the question at least, you know, there's no technique other than discipline. I mean, if you are want to be a systematic uh, trend follower or systematic trader, you just have to follow the rules. Uh, I don't think there's any technique we apply other than the discipline to do it uh, and the commitment to our clients and to ourselves to do it. And I do think you bring up a good point, and that is, um, you know, how do you stick with it during drawdowns? And I, I do think that's a real challenge. And this is where investors need to be um, a, a little bit alert. Um, and, and this is where I think managers with a long track record of several decades that have shown that they can stick to their system through the difficult times, they should be applauded for that, even if it means they have some reasonably large drawdowns, but they've stuck to it and it usually comes back and, and they end up making new all-time highs. Now, during COVID, uh, it has come forward for sure uh, publicly that several, even some of the big managers did not stick fully to their system because they they changed the risk levels. They reduced, for the most part, they they stepped in and they've reduced the leverage in their portfolios. Um, But that was a manual uh, discipline, or uh, sorry, a manual intervention. Now, at our firm, at Dunn, we certainly didn't do that. We've always stocked just uh, the system, and it gives us what it gives us. But it is something to be aware of, because things like that will never show up in a backtest. So once you start not following your system... Um, your backtest results actually goes out of the water or other window a little bit. Now, when you, you ask about this thing about the open PNL, and then you roll your contracts, and then there's potential for, don't look at it that way. You you need to just focus on where your entry was. Uh, so, what's the actual PNL from your original entry, and and that's how you're gonna measure it. Don't don't look too much about what happens when you roll because you're right you realize some profits or losses and you open yourself up to to others but in your excel spreadsheet just focus on the actual PL from entry um, that's what i would do and uh, and finally in terms of programming language i'm, I'm uh, interested in hearing your thoughts on that rich i think a lot of uh, bigger firms use frameworks like matlab for sure Python, of course, in terms of programming language. I know Rob um, Carver has done a lot of that. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's Python that he's uh, done, which is, I've heard that a lot, uh, people using Python as well. So, but again, the the programming language is probably not the most important part you need to worry about. But if you can find a, a framework or a package that you know well, and where you can make it work for you, I think that's probably more important, whether it's called Java or Python or something else uh c++ i'm not an expert as you can clearly hear um then just make it work um the systems that people have programmed for me in the past has been done uh with java language in a sql using an sql database that's much i can tell i don't really know much more than that so anyways <laughs>
1: what about you rich maybe you need to uh, step in here a little bit yeah so um it, it was a good question and um Look, one of the tricks that I do to – it's really important to reduce your expectation about low drawdowns uh, because um, as your sample size increases, your drawdowns build. It's sort of um, – I remember – Bill Dreis in your podcast Neil, said that he operated for about 20 years with this relatively low drawdown, and it was only in um, you know his last decade of operation he ever experienced 50% drawdowns, and this was a consequence of a you know a, a continuous extending sample size with an unwritten future entering new regimes. Um, you've got to be prepared to handle. Um, big drawdowns. And uh, one of the tricks that I use to do that is that if I undertake a back test on a particular market over, say, a 30, 40-year history, um, I will inevitably find that uh, because it's a back test, uh, it's going to have this beautiful drawdown and this beautiful um, compound annual growth rate. And in effect, I'm using in-sample data um, in, 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 I'm basically cherry-picking. That's what I'm saying. My backtest is a cherry-picked example which chooses naturally the lowest drawdown. So what I do is I then place that, that trading model on um, a different um, data set that is unseen for about 30 to 40 years that gives me a totally different profile and that's the one I use to give me expectations about what sort of drawdown you could expect over future data that is not a exact replication of a history um, so um, as we know the future is unwritten it's going to change we're going to get variations to what's occurred in the past so this is one way to to test your models on unseen data to get the true volatility that exists in your portfolio, that's not a cherry-picked example from your back test. So if, for instance, you've got a back test where it's showing you've only got a 15% drawdown, the reality is on this unseen data, you might very well have a 50% drawdown sitting there. Um, And this is a good way to reduce your expectations and build your tolerance because when you take your models into the live trading environment, it's good to know that uh, your models have survived over a 50% drawdown Plus, um, so when you're in that um, that regime, that hostile regime, and your drawdowns are building, you're not um, tempted to turn off your models. This is just a natural thing that happens over a large data sample, over unseen data. Expect that volatility. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and this is another thing that
0: I, I do think um, is is very important um, because you're right. I mean, um, first of all, I loved my own conversation with uh, Bill Dries back uh, in in the day, and. And uh, as, as you rightly said, he, as well as, you know, us at Don and, and many others, we've had our fair share of, of, of drawdowns um, for sure. Um, but what I think is really important when people look at track records, I mean, obviously I spent a lot of time with Alan last week talking about how to select trade, tra- uh, trend following managers or even any manager. And I think it's very natural when you look at a track record and maybe you have to compare 10 of them, you might get drawn towards the one that has the lowest drawdown because you think, wow, that is the safer one. Um, and but 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 something that's always stuck with me, it was a quote and it was something that I saw around the time when my son had his uh, cardiac arrest and 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 after that, of course, he has a quite a large scar right on his chest from from the surgery, of course. but I've always I've always said to him, You know, a scar is a sign of the fact that you survived, right? Those who don't survive, they never get a scar. And I see that a little bit in trend following and in in, in these track records as well, that those of us who have these large drawdowns, but we're still in it, it's a sign that we've survived these difficult times. So I see it as a sign of strength rather than a weakness, as long as, of course... The overall performance, and maybe we're going to talk about that later in one of your topics, as long as the overall performance obviously has to be has to be um, competitive and all of those things, but uh, drawdowns in themselves are not necessarily a sign of weakness. Um, so one should always be careful with that. And of course, we all know what happened with Bernie Madoff. He had no scars and no drawdowns, yet we all know where that story ended. So, anyways... Maybe to finish it off, by the way, um, would be to say that I would suspect, as a rule of thumb, Sack, uh, that a trend-following firm uh, or a trend-following system probably will have at least four to six times its monthly standard deviation as its maximum drawdown. So four to six times its monthly standard deviation as its month as its maximum drawdown. But when that is said, what I remember also is that back in 2013, when the industry went through a really difficult time, intra-year, not so much for the year as a whole, but intra-year, the summer of 13 was horrible for many trend followers. And I saw, and I remember this clearly, that many of the trend followers, and many of you will know them because they've been on the program here, had their worst drawdown by like 50% expanded. So if you were typically for your last 20 years, you've had worse drawdown 20%, suddenly it showed up as 30%. So as, as Rich rightly points out, I mean, we can't put you know 100% reliance on our back tests uh, that they will be the guide in terms of what performance will look like and in terms of what drawdowns will look like. There is a reason why past performance does not necessarily... Reflect the future results. (laughs) So, anyways, so, anyways. um, All right, quick question from Troy. Troy wrote in um, that um, I think he's another Aussie, actually, uh, Rich. He says, um, "Quick question, if you don't mind, do you know the approximate size of the global funds management industry? And of this, do you know how much is allocated towards trend following community via managed futures funds? I'm trying to ascertain whether the Australian market is underinvested in trend following. Um, what, from what I can see, there's less than a 1.5 billion invested into local domicile managed futures funds in a 4.5 trillion size industry." Uh, I'm sure it's hard to quantify, so a general feeling would be great. Um, Yeah, so Troy, from what I can tell, uh, the easiest answer is to say, yeah, everyone is under invested in trend following. I kind of, sh- I don't even need to look at the numbers for that. But on a more serious note, I think you're right. Four and a half. Well, I actually think that the, the five trillion mark is probably where um, you're gonna find the uh, the total hedge fund world today. So I looked it up, and it says, uh, from what I found uh, from Barclay Hedge, at that as of the end of Q1 2022, total assets under management for the hedge fund industry is 5.136. Uh, trillion dollars. So $5,136 billion. And the managed futures CTA industry was $360 billion. Um, I would guess, and this is purely a guess, that about 75% of the managed futures industry is probably trend following. Because we have short term, which I really don't consider as trend following even though we all make money from trends. It's just a matter of time frame, really. And there's some other stuff in there we, we have. So maybe there's $275, 300000000000 billion in trend following officially in the industry. Now, secretly, I think a lot of people apply trend following rules, even at the pension funds and all of that, in order to um, have some view on where markets are going to go. So that's my sense. And the trend following industry has not grown for a long time. It's been hoovering around $300 billion, 280, 325 for many, many years. Of course, it's having a resurgence this year from performance and from some renewed inflows, not a lot yet, but um, but it's still pretty small compared to the overall hedge fund uh, industry. And by the way, the largest sub uh, strategy in the hedge fund world, so of the $5.13 trillion, seems to be something they just simply call fixed income as a strategy. Uh, as far as I can tell, it has something like nine hundred billion dollars uh, in that particular strategy. Um, but there's some other ones like multi strategies, seven hundred billion uh, long uh, SR equity long only, four hundred and twenty billion. Not even sure why that is a hedge fund if it's a long only. Um, so yeah, some different, some different ones. All right, anything you wanna?
1: Add to that, or do you want to jump into? No, you, you, you've the next got one? The, the figures there, Neil. The only thing I would say is that in Australia, um You know, I'd bump into quite a few people around Australia, uh, but very few of them have heard of trend following, and they give me this bizarre look when I I tell them what I'm involved with. So I I would say in Australia, it's particularly underrepresented. So, you know, if Troy wants to do something about that, I think that would be fantastic if we could raise the the elevate or elevate the the name of trend following in the, the Australian financial markets. I think that would be a good thing.
0: You know, when I started in this uh, business uh, a few years in, there was actually an Australian manager that um, that was pretty well known. It just happens that it's so long ago, I can't remember the name, but I do remember <laughs> it was started by two brothers, and one of them was called Angus. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, and um, But I think they sold or changed the name or something, and I think maybe they were more short-term. Yeah, so, you know, but there are plenty of other... Managers to choose from. So, um, yeah, absolutely. All right. Now we have a mammoth amount of questions from Adam. And uh, Adam is also an Australian. It's funny that happens when you get on the show, uh, Rich, that the whole Australia starts writing into us. But there we are. (laughs) Okay, so let me set the scene. And Adam, just to warn you, uh, we may not get through all of your questions, but then I'll keep them for either Jerry or for when Rich comes back. Um, But I did want to honor your your efforts for writing in. Um, So we're going to tackle as many as we can, and we're going to jump to some uh, cool topics from uh, Rich. Okay, so my name is Adam, and I'm from Australia, Perth. I've been a long-time listener of your podcast series and eagerly await the release of each week's episode. While being a dedicated listener, this is my first question into the show. Thank you very much, Adam. Great to hear. Before getting to my questions and comments, I just want to thank you and your guests for providing this quality content. I'm truly grateful for all of the insights and knowledge being shared. And note, this is my number one educational resource when it comes to all things trend following. Certainly appreciate those comments, uh, Adam. Thank you so much. As some background, I've been passionate about trading for quite some time with Van Tharp's book, Trade Your Way to Financial Freedom, making an impression on me back when it was first released. Ever since, I have been drawn to the concept of R, multiples, and systematic trading ideas. However, I never really understood how to put it all together into a strategy. It wasn't until I started listening to your podcast on a regular basis uh, a couple of years ago that I felt it finally started to all fall into place. Great to hear. My question as follows may be best suited to Richard or Jerry um, and happy for these to be spread over various weeks. Okay, so you already anticipated this uh, uh, great stuff. Okay, you previously mentioned that it may be beneficial for smaller accounts who cannot leverage the diversification benefits of the strategy to allocate their funds to a professional manager. What are the typical minimum amounts required by a retail investor to be considered by a manager manager? Do you know of any trend following CTAs in Australia and any min- minimum investment threshold? Okay, so that's an easy one for me to uh, answer. And I do agree that for many people, it's better to go, uh, don't go the DIY way, even though people think that I say that because I work for a manager and all that, but that's really not the case. I'm only saying this because it is the best thing you can do for your money. Okay, so um, the typical investment amount uh, I would say, Adam, for the offshore funds, which Australian investors would definitely choose an offshore fund, not an US onshore. You can't get into those. So you would look for an offshore fund. You could look for a European usage fund, so that would be a European onshore fund, but frankly, they're typically much more expensive to to run for the managers, and therefore you pay more fees. Uh, Not necessarily more fees, but more costs, I should say, for service providers. So uh, even though we offer you know, both uh, at our shop, I would say offshore fund vehicles are typically uh, cheaper and it gives you uh, also, in some cases, more bang for the buck. They're more capital efficient because within the usage structures you have some limitations in terms of the leverage you're allowed to use. So the typical uh, minimum investment for an offshore fund is 100,000 US dollars, which is, for the most part, as far as I'm aware, uh, it is just dictated by the um, domicile of the fund. So the regulatory regime uh, in that jurisdiction, whether it's Cayman or Bermuda, or whatever it is, uh, will usually say it's a hundred thousand dollars. And they do that to make sure that people um, have to have a little bit of capital, so to speak, and therefore they assume that that means that they uh, are sort of high net worth individuals rather than retail uh, investors. Um, and that's why they impose uh, these restrictions. Um, then you asked about any Australian um, CTA's, and I'm frankly I don't I don't recall any one in terms of trend following CTA's. And there are plenty of European and U.S. managers to choose from. So I would just pick go and find what you consider the best ones if you want to go down that route. Okay, so let's move on. There is a lot of talk about testing various ideas and backtesting, etc., on the show. I have many ideas in which I would like to test. Some tested at a high level, some not. However, given my other time constraints, I don't have the necessary time in order to fully test and progress to the next stages. Do you know of any services available in which someone can request coding, testing, and supply a summary of the backtest results for a fee on an ad hoc basis, i.e. for the testing of specific ideas, parameters, a basket of futures. Well, Maybe I'm speaking to one of those today. I don't know. Um, But I also know that people like Rob Carver is very generous with sharing his code, as far as I'm aware. Uh, I think he makes his his code public. If you're into that kind of thing, of course, you should always be cautious about just taking other people's ideas and codes um, because if you don't fully understand them yourself, you don't know how to react to to, uh, the performance once it gets uh, difficult. Um, But, uh, Rich, do you know of any such service where you can have your ideas tested?
1: Look, um, I would advise, he, he looks at some of these forums, uh, these trading forums. For instance, um, the forum I used to inhabit was a forum called um, Forex Factory, which specialised in CFDs and Forex traders. And uh, you, you could find on that forum um, people with coding experience who you could basically... Give your ideas to, and then they'd code it up and run the test for you, and uh, give you an analysis of that. Um, but look, I'm not familiar in the future space uh, where you could do that. So, um, but I'm assuming it would be available, and um, you know, it might be as simple as um, some of these. Um, um, wor- uh, what do they call? They're, they're those work providers where you basically. Um, detail what you're after and uh, then they'll come back and um, you know see if there's a consultant out there that can give that opportunity. There's a few in Australia like that. But particularly in the coding world, you'd want to find those people that were proficient in coding in the futures. And, um, and I'm sure it's possible. I just don't know of anything off the top of my head that I could refer him to. Uh, let me speak from some personal uh,
0: experience uh, here, Adam. Uh, first of all, I would say I'd be incredibly cautious about um, finding anyone in a forum to do anything for you. Uh, secondly, I would say, you know, imagine you had found some really good idea, uh, giving it to a complete stranger in any event and uh, hoping that he's not going to use it for other purposes is also, I think, a little bit of a too, uh, too trusting relationship, perhaps. Um, since I'm not a coder myself or anything like that, I've always had to rely on people to do it. And I was lucky because I could find someone that I had actually worked with uh, who does uh, all of this and, and knows the CTA-specific trading strategy world when you program because it is not so easy. First of all, it is not easy to build a proper backtesting in environment yourself, that is really complicated. I have spent years uh, working uh, on these type of, of things, and so they're not easy at all. Um, therefore, for that, you're probably better off maybe buying a package that just for the for just for to do it run the numbers. Um, and uh, and those you can certainly find. And and again, I don't want to endorse it because I don't know it well enough. But I have heard about people things like trading blocks and trade station and stuff like that as Something people go to, yeah. I'm not sure what else. I just say be be really careful and cautious about these things. Uh, yeah. Okay. H- having having a
1: best friend that's a coder helps as well. Yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> oh wow, that's just become so useful, hasn't it? Um, okay. Then you go on and talk about. Um, okay, what is the relationship between the percentage risk per trade, i.e., half percent per trade? and the number of markets included within the strategy's investable universe. Is it reasonable to assume that as you increase the markets traded, the risk per trade would decrease? That's in your ballpark, Rich.
1: Yeah, so um, when when I'm um, using the risk per trade, I'm always equating it to my closed equity balance. So a percentage of risk in relation to my closed equity balance. Some people use the open equity balance. but um, So um, as you build up the number of markets, um, you, you find that you can get a lot of um, exposure in leveraged instruments and you can get uh, a, a lot of different um, markets and systems deployed uh, with small trade risk percentages. But you do find that the, what you call a portfolio heat of the portfolio does increase. So Niels um, uh, and I, um, we, we use a measure um, that that continuously assesses the level of portfolio heat at any particular point in time that exists in our portfolio. So, that is effectively the the risk if everything moved to their stop um, in an instant. Um, that basically expresses a theoretical maximum adverse risk that the portfolio could could have, but recognising that a lot of the positions in your portfolio might be hedged against each other. So whilst that's a worst case scenario, you wouldn't expect that that heat to ever be translated um, as real risk. But it is something to keep in mind that as you slowly build um, the number of systems and markets in your portfolio with your trade risk percent allocation, uh, you you the portfolio is like a risk sponge that just absorbs more and more risk. So you've got to be careful that you're choosing uncorrelated um uh, return streams as you're building your portfolio and you don't get overexposed to any single um, you know, positively correlated environment. Um, and uh, yeah, it there is a sweet spot and you do need to keep control of your portfolio heat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You go on and that's uh, linked to this question. You say, following on from this, if one was say to say risk 1% per trade and include say 70 markets, it seems reasonable to assume that the hypothetical max loss of 70% could be possible if each market triggered a buy signal and eventually got stopped out. When backtesting, would you also consider the highest number of simultaneous trades? Some detailed discussion on on the topic of risk management and position sizing would be most appreciated. Yeah, what I would just say here sort of briefly is that, as Rich already said, I mean, you can't just say, I'm going to take 70 markets and, and risk 1% because, you, as you allude to, it's just too much potential risk. But what I can share with you is when I look at my own trend-following model that we, uh, Rich and I, publish the results every month on the, uh, on the website, um, when I look at that, if i i i calculated this open you know risk to stop that what is if everything gets stopped out today and that includes of course the initial stops but also the trailing stops and and so on and so forth and that tends to be somewhere between 10 and 20% all the time sometimes it's lower sometimes it's a little bit more than that but that is what you would expect you don't want something that suddenly says like 45% uh if everything gets stopped out because you don't know. I mean, it could happen, and you could get slippage on top of that. So, keep it conservative. It's not a sprint; it's a marathon, and you have plenty of time um, ahead of you. I have a feeling you are younger than both Rich and I, so so you have plenty of time. Um, and uh, don't. The most important thing in trend following is to be able to fight another day. So, the the worst thing that can happen is that you, you know, lose too much. Uh, that it takes you too long to make back to your 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 uh, last all-time high, in in my opinion.
1: Yeah, look, just something I'd I'd like to add there, Niels, is that the intention of diversification is effectively, it, at least in my opinion, is to reduce your trade risk to as low as you can go, to basically achieve the the lowest risk exposure per return stream in your portfolio. So, whilst a lot of people talk about um, 50 basis points, or 0.5%, or 1%. Really, they're just guidelines. But I'd be aiming to reduce it to as low as you go, because the more you reduce your trade risk percentage or your allocation towards a single return stream, the more you can diversify your portfolio and achieve um, these 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 significant benefits of diversification. So, in 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 my opinion, it. Always go for the lowest you possibly can within your broker limitations. Um, and and also, as you're sort of um, immersing yourself into this trading game, always make sure you start with the lowest level before you even consider lifting your leverage, um, because it's, it's ideal to um, go as low as you go and go as wide as you go with your diversification before you even start considering raising your trade risk percentage across the board. Yeah, and then you go on and ask to consider changing
0: the percentage risk per trade whenever you add a new market. Um, and and um, and of course, uh, as I think we've already said, you definitely need to do that. And also, if you've listened to uh, my recent conversation with Jerry and, and, and maybe the recent conversations with Jerry, when he talks about the fact that he has 200 markets in his portfolios, he's risking only 0.15% per market in total, including all of his systems, right? So that is the way he, in a sense, if everything went belly up, I mean, it's potential loss of 30%. It's not, you know, 70%, right? So so you do need to take that into account. Of course, there are some different opinions uh, here on the show in terms of how many markets are enough and all of that stuff. You know, so that you need to work out for yourself and and what what you're comfortable with and what you believe in, more importantly, because if you don't believe in your system, you're never going to stick to it. Um, Simple as that. Then you go on to say, a common theme has been around keeping it simple. Uh, One entry, one stop, and one stop loss. What, if any, bells and whistles do you consider reasonable in addition to simple trend-following approach? Uh, do your stop systems backtest endorse the use of trend regime filters, such as uh, being above or being below the 200-day moving average before taking a breakout? Apart from reducing sample size, what are the benefits or weaknesses um, to such an inclusion?
1: Do you uh, want to go first, uh, Rich, on yeah, that? Yeah, well, look, that that's a great question because... Yeah. With with all of my trend followings, I I am effectively um, applying a regime filter, and I'm doing that in many different ways. I'm either doing that through choosing a very you know, a long-term look back with my my breakouts, which therefore means that I'm avoiding the normal everyday volatility of the market, and price has got to do something quite significant before I even entertain an entry into a trend with that model. You know, and I might use models that do use a uh, a 200 simple moving average as a regime filter uh, for a breakout. That that's a good idea. Um, ideally, what because I'm trying to target. The, the the tail regions of that distribution of returns i'm being very selective in the types of trend i want to participate in so yeah i agree i i i do look for markets to uh, start exhibiting this exotic behavior before i even get interested in them yeah no i i,
0: I well You're definitely going to meet some people on the podcast who are going to say, no, 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 no. You just need the raw one entry, one exit, one stop. And you know, in the long run, that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And actually, you could argue that in the last couple of years, those are the systems that probably performed the best because they react so quickly. And when trends start and they just continue, real real follow-through, that's exactly what you want. However... There's going to be periods where that doesn't happen, and in those periods, uh, Rich is absolutely right that having some kind of filtering could be a good idea. And I'm, um, you know, from memory, that's also how we built some of the uh, models inside the uh, Ttu Trend Following Model. There are some, you could say, filtering um, I- in there, or at least there are some hurdles that needs to be met before the signals, you know, are are, are fully implemented and so on and so forth. But just be careful with it because what is tempting is often to add so many filters that you have very few losing trades and your drawdowns are small and everything looks great. That's when you know that you've over-optimized, right? So maybe you could say as a rule, having one filter is not too bad, but don't overdo it. Stick with, be as close to classic simple trend following as possible, but we're all a little bit different. So of course... Very few managers only use one stop, one entry, and 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 one exit, for sure. But it's still pretty robust, so um, don't discount the simplicity, I would say. All right, um, question number seven from uh, Adam. Uh, Tom Basso, uh, trend-following legend, previously commented, completed some research suggesting that the most important aspect of a system is the stop-loss methodology and position sizing slash risk management. This has was shown through a random entry system. What are the common types of stop losses employed by your systems, and what are the benefits and weaknesses of each? Also, have you or your guests considered a back-tested time-based stop? Um, s- uh, say if a trade is not profitable after X days, then exit. This could be potentially this could potentially reduce the quantum of losing trades, however, allowing another chance for an entry uh, on a re-breakout. Um, and then finally, it appears that uh, though the ATR trailing stop appears to be the tool of choice, um, is there any reason for that? So, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, well, uh, it's with- a great question. Um, so. Um- There are lots of different types of trailing mechanism. Effectively, what we're saying is for our trend-following models, we don't define a profit target, but we do use a a trailing mechanism uh, that basically slowly follows price as it goes in a favourable direction. But, um, you know, something such as um, a, a Donkian breakout technique, using a Donkian channel, you know, The, the um, if you're in a, a long trend, that lower Donkian tra- channel, over the course of time, ratchets up behind price. And that can be a, an effective trailing stop mechanism. Uh, but that's actually an indicator itself that's doing that. Others might be, um, you, you know... Um, I was just thinking of a few. You... It could be a moving average. It could, yeah, it could, it could be, be a chandelier exit. Sure. And it could also be that if you're in a
0: long trade, um, you calculate a certain distance from the most recent high. So you don't want to give back too much. Now, I know some of these things will not be popular with some of the co-hosts here on the podcast because it's not as classic trend as as it could be. And that's fine. So you need to find, again, something that you believe in and that's something that sort of matches what you expect from your test. And, of course, be open to the fact that it's not going to work out exactly as your back test uh, would say. In terms of the um, profitable days and and then time-based exits, for longer-term trend-following systems, I don't know if that's a good idea, frankly, because we're back to the loose pants Uh, We actually don't care what the trend looks like. We don't have an ambition that when we get a signal, that the signal just takes off. I mean, it would be wonderful, but it never works out that way. So even if it's, you know, just trading sideways for a month and then suddenly it shoots off. And a good example of that would be some of the recent commodity moves. Um, We got into oil and other commodities way before the big breakouts really happened. And they were just chugging along, not doing much, but we were long and we were ready. Um, So if you had some kind of time-based system that took you out because nothing happened in the first month, I think it would be a shame. In short yeah, those time based
1: those time-based uh, ones they're effective for momentum models but not necessarily for trend following models so right uh, yeah uh, you know I remember Cesar Alvarez did a big research study on uh, using time-based exits for his momentum models and they were successful however for our trend yeah. following we, with this loose pants um, they don't really work very well at all as far as my research goes no fair enough
0: we've got two more questions let's see if we can Oh, just one Get thing. Uh, he, we'll um, f- yeah, I fine. think it was
1: Adam mentioned about ATR. Why is ATR uh, oh, yeah. a favourable me- mechanism? Well, for me, ATR is it, it. It does so many things. It's not just a, a means for um, uh, defining a trailing stop or an initial stop. It's also a means to normalise your markets. In other words, normalize your system to different markets. So different markets um, have different price structures, such as cryptocurrencies, such as commodities, such as Forex. But using an ATR allows you to normalize all of that. So your models can be applied for any of those different markets. So using the same model for different markets. Great point. So Uh, We're almost at the end with Adam's questions here. Um,
0: Number eight, what is the typical relationship between the look-back period adopted and the distance to the uh, stop loss? Um, It must be maybe the initial stop loss. Uh, Is it commonly mentioned that longer-term models are more robust in which I assume references made to the entry look-back period? Does a longer-term look-back need to be matched by a longer look-back for wider uh,
1: stops. Uh, so uh, that that's a very good question because I'm I'm pretty pretty pedantic on this point. So I might use long lookbacks, which is a way to define when I enter a trade. But um, I certainly might have. Um, whilst I might delay my entry into a trend, um, when I get into that trend, I might have different. You know, short-term models, medium-term models, long-term models, which will have different stops, different trailing stops applied from that entry point. So um, whilst I use long lookbacks, I don't necessarily have wide trailing stops, if that makes sense. I have a combination of different models for when I decide to participate in that trend.
0: Yeah, and maybe, Adam, it's a good idea, uh, if you can yourself, or if you find someone who can for you, is to... uh, Test this by by saying, okay, I'm gonna use this lookback period, for example, and then use uh, run some tests with different um, initial stops in terms of uh, how loose they are, so to speak. Um, it might give you an idea uh, that there is a sweet spot. And I don't mean to over optimize, but I also don't think you should be, you know, blind to the fact that if you have a longer term system, but you put the stop to close, you're going to get stopped out of most of your entries, uh, perhaps. So, but I think the only way to find that out for the, your specific methodology uh, is to test. Don't necessarily go for the best, as, as Rich says, go for a mix, go for a mix of look-back periods. Um, that's what we do uh, at, the, at the on the professional side, that's exactly how these things work, so that we get in slowly to a trend and we get out uh, to a trend. We don't do it in one go uh, at all. All right, final question. Um, And we do appreciate all these questions, Adam, by the way. Um, You previously mentioned that you were not a fan of cross-sectional momentum models. Uh, Just keen to hear your thoughts as to why. I've been considering this type of strategy It's only an idea at this stage, as a good way for a small account to essentially filter a large amount of markets in order to only invest in the markets that exhibit the highest momentum. In summary, if the goal is to catch outliers, then the strategy will have to own these markets as uh, at some stage they will be showing the strongest momentum. I would couple this with ATR position sizing and trading stop, however, rotate out if another market exhibits stronger momentum at the measurement date. Would you only go long and short if uh, a minimum momentum hurdle was met, um, i.e. momentum has to get negative in order to take short positions and positive to take a long position? Have you or your guest backtested this idea?" Now, the reason I said, and I thinking, what I'm thinking of here is this, where you say, yeah, you have maybe 50 markets, but you're not going to treat them completely individually in terms of position size, and you're going to look at how do they, relative to each other, stack up in terms of strength or momentum. I know people who do it, um, and maybe it can make work for them, but I, again, keeping it simple, I like the idea of treating... Each, in the mar- each market individually. So just calculating the strength for that market and and size the position of that market based on that strength. Not look at any other markets for an indication as to whether you should be having more or less exposure to that, uh, to a specific market. I, I, I just don't know uh, that it's such a great idea. That's just my hunch.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you, Neil. So, you know, Gary Antonacci with the dual momentum, uh, you know, Nick Radjano uses it. Um, There's a lot of different traders that successfully use cross-sectional momentum methods, but um, I'm not a fan of it um, simply because um, the mechanics of the things that I like to target, which are these things I frequently refer to as outliers, I believe is different to the mechanics of of Momentum, you know, when you're trading these um, cross-sectional momentum methods, you're saying there is some information I can gather from the level of momentum that has been um, occurred Um over a particular range of different markets. I will therefore assume that those with the strongest current momentum are the ones I'm going to participate in going forward. So you're making a statement based on the past momentum that you think that that level of strength and that momentum is going to continue, whether long or short. Right. Um, where, with the nature of these outliers that I'm capturing, there's much less information I can get about that. Um, uh, it can occur in any liquid market. There is no preferential market I'm looking for. Um, the, the, you know, we talked about these endogenous events Uh, you know, um, the you you can't actually necessarily identify the causal drivers of those things while you're participating in them. It might be something that you can only see in hindsight down the track. So I've got a very much more uncertain viewpoint um, of the things that I'm targeting as opposed to uh, the cross-sectional momentum boys. They both work. Um, I like mine better. I, I would always argue in preference of of my style better, but um I can see um, a lot of people do like this dual momentum.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, maybe they work at different times, so to speak, uh, potentially, but on the other hand, I still get the feeling that you end up buying kind of past winners because you can only buy them when they're when it's clear that they have a higher momentum so you miss out on the period where they got to have a strong momentum and that's what i fear that you're actually leaving a lot of money on the table by doing so of course you could potentially also leave some losses on the table you know on the table and that's helps you but i still think you should just keep it simple especially if you're starting out if you're starting out don't overcomplicate and you know et cetera et cetera Anyways, Adam, thank you for all your questions. Thanks for all your kind words. I hope this was helpful. I hope everyone else benefited from your questions. Um, They were very good. All right, Rich. We uh, have been going for one hour and seven minutes already, um, but we have at least one important topic that we wanted to talk about. Um, So I'm going to basically let you take over.
1: Well, thanks, Neil. I think that the topic I want to discuss today is something that you and I are involved with with our monthly reports. So um, in our monthly reports, we put together this index called the Top Traders Unplugged Trend Following Index. And I thought in this discussion, we could compare and contrast this index with some of the other popular trend following indexes, such as the SG Trend Index and the BTOP50 Index. Uh, because there are some very important things that come out through um, looking at the nature of these different indexes so when we look at um, the, the the common indexes that are used by um, a lot of the fund managers um, the, uh, the society general trend index or the SG trend index is a very popular index as is the B top 50 so the society general trend in- index is um, it's uh, it's effectively looking at the largest trend following CTAs, um, so um, that that are uh, trade in the managed futures space. So uh, their criteria to be included in their index is that they must be um, trading primarily futures, uh, they must be broadly diversified, they. Um, They must be recognised as a trend follower by Societe Generale. Uh, They must exhibit significant correlation to trend-following peers, so that therefore classifies them as a distinct grouping, and uh, they must be open to new investment, and they must report returns on a daily basis. Now, the way they construct the SG trend. It's an equally weighted index that is rebalanced annually. And it's also reconstituted annually if there are any changes in who are the, the, the top 10 largest CTAs. So they're looking at the largest 10 managers with assets under management who meet all of those criteria. And so that's really an index that looks at the big boys in our space. Um. B top 50 is another index that also looks at the big boys in our space. Even though it's called the B top 50, there's actually in the 2022, there's actually only 20 in the index. So that's interesting, isn't it? that? That uh, they're using B top 50. You'd expect them to have the 50 largest trend followers in there, but um, they're only represented by 20 currently as at 2022. But for the B top 50, once again, uh, they're, they're looking at the largest investable trading advisor programs um, measured by assets under management. Um, there's a, a very similar criteria to the SG trend, um, but they um, the program's advisor must have at least three years of operating history. They must have at least two years of trading activity. Um, so uh, and the BTOP50s uh, portfolio is equally weighted at the beginning of each calendar year. And um, as I said, they're currently they're in the, the B Top 50. There's only 20 constituents currently in that index. So both SG Trend and B Top 50, they're looking at the largest trend followers, and they're looking at a specified number of the largest trend followers. So then we come to your and my T T U trend following index. Well,
0: let me let me let me just interrupt you there. Did you say the B Top 50 would also be looking at the largest trend followers? Because I don't see that in the sense that some of the constituents in the beta 50 index are not trend followers in my mind. Um, And also, um, some of them are very specific. I mean, there's one of them that is just trading net gas. I mean, so I would say that here, the constituents are more representative of the industry, the managed futures industry as a whole, less so trend followers
1: specifically. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. All right, good. So... Now, in recognition of the fact that these very popular indexes uh, basically are are looking at the big boys, uh, not necessarily trend following, as you say, Niels, uh, we decided, well, let's create an index ourselves of trend followers and let's not look at size as a criteria for inclusion. Let's look at track record. So, we created um, this this index, um, which is reported in our monthly reports that we put on the blog post, and the method of construction, therefore, is not using AUM as a criteria, it's using at least a 15-year track record. So, therefore, this gives the opportunity for trend-following programs that are smaller that um, have had a very long-term track record of being represented in the index. And um, so, to be included in the TTU trend-following index, they must be geographically diversified across a broad array of asset classes. Um, They must be fully systematic in nature. So, we're including the need for a systematic um, um, operation. Um, it also possess at least a 15-year unbroken track record. They must adopt trend-following techniques as the dominant investment strategy. They must be currently investable programs, so therefore currently active, and um, they must report on at least a monthly basis. So we are drawing this information from the Nielsen-Hedge database, um, who captures this information. So, of course, one of the criteria for inclusion, they must be reported by Nielsen-Hedge. And our index um, is equally weighted like the other indexes, but we rebalance on a monthly basis and we reconstitute monthly as well. So um, we're looking at an inception date as well, like the others from the 1st of January 2000, and... As at the 30th of April, 2022, the TTU trend following index had 60 programs in it, unlike the SG trend, which has got 10 and the B top 50 that's currently got 20 and not necessarily trend following. So the, the exciting thing to me is that this um, TTU trend following index is not just an index, it's actually uh, an allocation method. So, for instance, theoretically, if we had an infinite amount of funds, provided we used track record, a 15-year validated track record as our basis for um, selecting all of our funds, we would be selecting all funds that meet that criteria, at least a 15-year track record. So we're not applying any form of selection bias in the index itself, apart from it must have this validated track record. And what we find, which is exciting to me at least, is that when you compare and contrast the three different indexes, we find that the TTU trend following index clearly outshines both the BTOP50 and ESG trend, both in terms of its compound annual growth rate and in terms of its um, drawdown. And <clears throat> you and I, Niels, um, in in our monthly report, um, we we offer a solution for those people with limited capital, um, which we call a serenity allocation, which is our way when dealing with um, you know traders with a limited amount of capital. How can they get exposure to a diversified group of trend followers? Well, by using the serenity ratio, that allows us to work within that limited capital constraint. But the T T U trend following index is theoretically, if you had unlimited capital, what would you want to invest in? Would you select any of those individual programs within um, that um, that listing? Well, it turns out that if you invest uh, equally weighted into the entire index itself, it produces um, the optimal risk weighted returns of any possible selection within that index itself. So it's it's a it really demonstrates to me, Niels, the, the power of diversification, because what we're saying is that if we invested theoretically into 60 of these programs that demonstrated this long-term track record, the first thing is, is saying to me, the validated track record is the best form of risk metric we have available. You know, a lot of people use SHARP, a lot of people use Sortino, a lot of people use MAR, a lot of people use Serenity Ratio, but but the real ultimate form of measure of robustness is the track record itself. It speaks loudly in terms of this trend following index. The second thing is that if I invest in all of these trend following fund managers without getting into any form of selection bias, I get a fantastic result by virtue of the diversification benefits achieved through um, exposure to 60 of these trend-following programs, and each of these programs themselves is highly diversified. So what this is saying is when we sort of almost apply infinite levels of diversification through applying the index, we get an even better result than selecting any of the individuals within it. And the other thing is that each of these different programs have their own inherent different systematic methodologies, different systems. So therefore, we're also getting massive diversification of systems by investing in the entire index. Now, I, I often look at this, this trend following index, and I know a lot of people say, oh, it's just an index, but it's much more than that. It, it, it loudly speaks to all of the things we've discussed over this this podcast over so many years, the powers of diversification, the powers of trend-following. And another thing is, I I noticed that the index itself, the TTU trend-following index, its drawdown since the year 2000 to current day is only 18%, and its compound annual growth rate is about 8.57%. So let's compare that to, uh, let's compare that to the S&P 500, which has got, uh, I think, um, over that period of time, if I look at it, it's around about 6.5% CAGR, but a, a 50% drawdown for the S&P 500. Any of the individual trend-following programs within that index is going to have a higher drawdown, and they're probably going to have a lower compound annual growth rate as well. But by, by investing in the entire ensemble of everything on offer, that is, that's the best solution. So what do you think? Well, I mean,
0: it's a great and it's very compelling story, uh, of course, for some. Um, putting a hundred thousand dollars in 60 managers is not impossible right six million dollars. but maybe there's an institution out there thinking, wow, that's pretty good. maybe I should contact uh, Nails and Rich and and uh, and actually build the TTU trend following index and and so if you are sitting out there and with that in mind, you should contact uh, me or Rich for sure. And um, these are powerful um, themes, even though we m- might make them sometimes sound too simple, but they're not. Because, as as Rich, you rightly say, underneath there's a lot going on that we talk about all the time, and here's a way for us to visualize for for the audience um,
1: what that looks like. At, at least it shows me as well that uh, there's an opportunity for a clever person out there to create an ETF that mimics that index. And um, I could imagine. Yeah, the ETF world,
0: uh, Rich. It's not so easy once you get into the ETF world. I would, uh, I would stick with offshore. It's really not that easy. Um, But anyway, we don't have time to (laughs) discuss why (laughs) it's not so easy to do these things. Um, But uh, not today, at least. So yeah, just some inspiration for people. I, I hope. And of course, we don't know. Uh, we should say that we don't know if all of these sixty programs are offered as an offshore fund where you can put in a hundred thousand. Many of them will be, but not necessarily all of them. But they, you know, but you could probably invest in them as far as we can tell. Um, in 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 most of them, at least. So you could get pretty close uh, in in reality. Rich, this has been awesome. Um, but I do think we need to leave the next topic for next time or for some kind of bonus thing we might do. Um, and by the way, if people were to produce the TTU index as a product, they would have Rich write the monthly report automatically. Yes, that's, right? that's one of the things <laughs> I'd have to accept. That's a little added benefit, <laughs> because that's exactly what we do Uh when we publish it each month, anyways, um, we talked a little bit about May numbers, um, or we talked about May in general, and and we talked about the numbers being a little bit soft. But maybe now that we've talked about the constituents of these two, in of some of these indices, people will better understand why they're different. So, for example, the B Top Fifty Index was up forty eight basis points in uh, May, uh, up fifteen percent uh, so far this year. But the Shock Gen CT index um, was down 10 basis points, up quarter uh, percent this year. And the SG trend index was down 32 basis points, but up 25.58% so far this year. But if you think about the fact that the B top 50 index, for example, I'm just, I don't know exactly if this is true or not. But there is this, for example, a net gas Trader in there, and I know some of these net gas programs are up like a hundred and something percent in the last twelve months. So even if you just have one of the twenty uh, uh, constituents being a net gas trader, it does make a difference. Um, so maybe that what it, it explains the month by month uh, differences in returns. Um, maybe also finally to note that the SG uh, short term traders index uh, was up eighty two basis points in May, up nine and, and a half in. Uh, Year to date, and then finally, the MSAI world index, uh, as a reference, is down 16 basis points in May, uh, down 13.64 percent. Um, and also the world government bonds were down again in May, down 71 basis points. I think they're down like 8.2 percent, uh, so far this year. Uh, and the SP was flat uh, last month, anyway. Speaking of flat, my trend barometer is pretty flat at the moment, it's 45, which is neutral. Um, so not expecting any. From, from that. So my, plus, minus 1% or 2% for most managers in, in May is what I would expect to see. I think that's about it for today. Um, I hope you um, got some value from all of these questions. We appreciate them. Uh, feel free to uh, continue to send in your questions. Um, if you like what you hear, uh, of course, we would uh, love for you to share the podcast with your friends and your colleagues and your families but also to leave a rating and review in uh, iTunes and on Spotify because they really, really do help. Next week, uh, Rob Carver is back, um, so uh, it'll be great to tackle some more questions with him. He always have he has of course a different uh, view of looking at things, um, so uh, so that's always fun. You can either email them to info at toptradersonblog.com. From Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. Until that time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.